0: the great fundamental issue now before our people can be stated It is, are the American people fit to govern themselves, to rule themselves, to control themselves? I believe they are. My opponents do not.
1: Of government, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military industrial complex. We must never let the weight of this combination endanger our liberties or democratic process. the future and the image of our hopes is ours as to determine by our actions and our choices. If we succeed, generations to come will say of us now living that we mastered our moment. Americanism, not globalism, will be our credo. Bringing Heartland America into the heart of the swamp. This is The Right Take.
0: How's it going, everybody? Welcome back. Welcome, one and all, to episode number 69 of The Right Take. I am Eric Lendrum here with my co-host, Jacob Grandstaff. And we are back after another break last week. We, of course, took the holiday week off. Sorry about that, guys. But, of course, what better holiday to take off than America's birthday? In this case, America's 246th birthday. Happy birthday to you, you beautiful nation that we live in that I think is still very much worth defending even with everything that has gone on these days over the last few years. Uh, I had a very eventful 4th of July weekend. I uh, all 3 days, I of course I had Monday the 4th off. On Saturday I went to go see a movie. Uh, one of only a few movies I've seen in theaters recently. I saw Top Gun earlier this year. I went to go see the Elvis movie because uh, spoiler alert, I am a huge fan. Of the King of Rock and Roll, and we will actually be talking about that later in today's episode because we both ended up seeing the Elvis movie separately. Uh, but then Sunday, an old buddy of mine from one of my old internships visited me. I we did the internship together five years ago now, and I had not seen this guy in four years. He last visited me in California in 2018. Cool. Uh, He had just graduated law school recently, so he came to visit me from down south, and we went to Mount Vernon together, which was quite nice. Uh, Despite being a Sunday and the Sunday before July 4th, no less, it actually wasn't that crowded. We actually were even able to get a seat, a a table, at the Mount Vernon Inn and Restaurant, which was quite nice. And then Monday, the 4th of July, I went to visit another old friend, a coworker of mine who retired a couple of years ago, who is now happily retired and living on a lake. And living on a lake, he has a boat, which was quite nice. So we went out on the water, we had lunch, we chatted, we caught up, a lot of catching up to do after two years. Because this guy, uh, I told him jokingly, his retirement ended up pulling out the linchpin of the universe because he retired right before everything went to hell in a handbasket with covid race riot everything so uh, that was that was quite nice got to go on a little road trip for the fourth and i was back in the evening to see some fireworks from my bedroom window so that was quite nice jacob my man how did you spend your fourth well i spent
1: the weekend before that with some college friends did did a cookout did all the major prerequisites of the fourth of july weekend then i went down to my sister and brother-in-law's near just outside of nashville and then on the fourth i spent it in downtown nashville they have uh, so just out of just out of curiosity, I haven't I don't, I've never been in D.C. during the Fourth of July fireworks. I've seen the New Year's fireworks because normally in the past I've worked for a fireworks company out west. How long did that show last in your estimation?
0: Um, I didn't see that show this year. The fireworks that I saw were not the ones from D.C. because I, I live uh, in Arlington. So the ones I saw were coming from further uh, mm-hmm. west of me out further into Virginia. I was I can't see a D.C. from where I am.
1: Well, the reason why I ask is because most fireworks shows last 10 to 15 minutes, like at the New Year's, 4th of July. Mm-hmm. In Nashville, they go for a solid hour, and I'm not uh, even exaggerating. That One hour great. straight of fireworks, and not only do they shoot all fireworks for an hour, for the entirety of that hour, the Nashville Symphony Orchestra is playing patriotic songs <sighs> as the fireworks are shooting up behind the orchestra. So they have a concert before the symphony orchestra gets up. This year, Old Dominion headed it up and then they bring out the orchestra and the orchestra plays nonstop and they said they got the sound perfect to where the fireworks don't actually erase the sound of the of the orchestra but it is the best it was by far the best firework show i've ever seen um, that
0: so that does sound pretty great i will i will try to one-up you are i'll say i'll match you on that one i did do you remember jacob back in a i believe it was 2019 when president trump had his big july 4th celebration on the national mall like at the lincoln memorial and like the left went nuts because like he was gonna have a military his display of military vehicles and military equipment they said oh this is what fascists do on july 4th 2019.
1: july f- 2019 yeah no, no, no. Because I was, I was out west. I've been working out west and right. for a fireworks company in the past few years.
0: Yeah, it was called the Salute to America. That's right, and that was an incredible day. That even with slight rain, it was raining slightly. But once Trump came out on stage, we did, stopped caring about the weather, and we loved it. He gave a great speech, uh, paying tribute to each branch of the military: Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines, Coast Guard. And each time he did, there was a flyover of uh, aircraft from that branch. And then uh, it ultimately concluded with a rendition of God Bless the USA, my favorite song, let's be honest. And there was a final flyover by the Blue Angels, which was fantastic. And I know you mentioned uh, with your celebration that you went to, you could still hear the music over the fireworks, which is important. I remember when the flyover happened, it was over the final verse of the song of course the roar of the jet engines you couldn't hear the song anymore all you heard was just the roar of the jet engines but that kind of added to the atmosphere so obviously we have come a very long way and not in the good way in just those three years since that glorious July 4th but I retain hope that we will go back to such celebrations in the near future so it's my favorite holiday for a reason. I enjoyed mine this year especially, and I, for one, look forward to many, many more happy 4th of July. And happy birthdays to America. In just four years, we will be having America's 250th. That's going to be a fun one indeed. So while we're still in a good mood here, let's go ahead and uh, kick off some white pill stories just to get us started for our intro here. This, this is all just stuff we're going to kind of skim over quickly before we get to the main topics. Um, one story, I knew we had to talk about this. A lot happened, needless to say. There's, this is going to be an action-packed, jam-packed episode. There's a lot to talk about because a lot did happen both in America and overseas over the last couple of weeks. Um, I remember a while ago, Jacob, and you, you'll probably remember what I'm talking about. You, me, and a mutual friend of ours had dinner one time. And this was way before uh, the Georgia primary happened. this is you know Kemp versus Purdue and you had mentioned that after Vernon Jones dropped out to run for Congress, there was one other Republican still running for governor besides Kemp and Purdue. a woman by the name of Candace Taylor, and you told me that her entire campaign platform for Governor of Georgia was based on one issue, one single promise which was as governor, she would tear down the Georgia Guidestones. And our mutual friend laughed, and I just sat there dumbfounded like, what are the Georgia Guidestones? I've never heard of that before. Let me
1: specify what she said about it. She said that she was going to tear down the satanic Georgia Guidestones, just so we're clear.
0: Satanic Georgia Guidestones. I had no idea what you were talking about. We just kind of moved on because we were talking about a lot that night. Um, They're back in the news now. Uh, for a kind of unexpected out-of-nowhere reasoning. Uh, Jacob, please tell us now what the Georgia Guidestones are, or rather, past tense, Wikipedia-style, what the Georgia Guidestones were.
1: So the Georgia Guidestones are out in the middle of the field, in the middle of, the no- of nowhere. Um, most people in Georgia probably had never heard of them before they were, before a bomb was planted in them. And, and just for those who didn't hear, there was a bomb that was planted in one of them, blew it up, and then they recently demolished it. But the reason why these created such controversy is because these Guidestones had 10 messages in eight languages. And on these – and I'll just read the 10 messages that they were allegedly – they were like messages to future humans. So number one, maintain humanity under 500 million in perpetual balance with nature, which is kind of a problem considering there's about 7 billion people on the Earth today. Yeah. Number two. Guide reproduction wisely, improving fitness and diversity. Number three, unite humanity with a living new language so we can discard English and all these old world languages and create a new globalist language. Number four, rule passion, faith, tradition, and all things with tempered reason. Number five, protect people and nations with fair laws and just courts. Number six, let all nations rule internally, resolving external disputes in a world court. So basically the United Nations on steroids. Avoid petty laws and useless officials. Number eight, balance personal rights with social duties. Number nine, prize truth, beauty, love, seeking harmony with the infinite. Number ten, be not a cancer on earth. Leave room for nature. Leave room for nature. They felt the need to put nature tell us to leave room for nature twice because nature obviously is more important than humans since we need to keep humans below 500 million. So this is obvious. Obviously, has a very globalistic message to to humanity. The people who created this were obviously huge globalists. Now, just to start off with the Wikipedia, the top it says the Georgia Guidestones was a granite monument. That's a, that's a glorious... Was. <laughs> glorious verb right there. Glorious verb tense. Was a granite monument that stood in Elbert County, Georgia from 1980 to 2022. It was 19 feet 3 inches tall and made from six granite slabs weighing a total of 237,746 pounds. The structure was sometimes referred to as an American Stonehenge. I've
0: seen, that, who, I've seen that thrown around a lot that say, oh, this is America's Stonehenge. I'm like, are these people like brain dead to say that? This thing was less than 50 years old. Yeah. Stonehenge is over 5,000 years old. I'm pretty sure that's not an accurate comparison. Sorry, I just had to say that.
1: Yeah, yeah. So the guy who created his name, was, his alias was Robert Christian. We don't know what his real name was. That's what he went by. It was Robert Christian. And he approached the Albertson Granite Finishing Company on behalf of, quote, a small group of loyal Americans to commission the structure. And They thought he was a nut, so they quoted him an astronomical price for it, which at the time was over $100,000, which in today's money is over $350,000. And they figured this will cause his nut job to, to, to leave us alone, but surprisingly, he accepted the offer. He said, okay, sure, and he coughed up the money. It kind of stood in obscurity for years. It was um, there were a bunch of cows who grazed around it. He bought five acres, and it was completely surrounded by farmland. And it really wasn't until the early two thousands, like especially around the the crash of two thousand eight, when globalism became much more prescient in people's minds, that people started paying attention to this. And uh, you know, it's mainly just the the message that people have a problem with, because you know. American patriots, American nationalists don't agree with globalism. We don't think the U.N. should exist. We want to get the U.S. out of the U.N. and get the U.N. out of the U.S. And, of course, the message that this guy believed in was keeping humanity and basically massive birth control, keeping humanity under 500 million and then setting up an international criminal court. That all international disputes will be judged by, you know, eroding sovereignty.
0: There's just so, so much, yeah. There's so much to break down here because, like, it, a lot of it sounds globalist and leftist and whatnot. There's just enough in there to suggest that, especially that one commandment of, uh, I noticed it says the. Um, uh, Guide reproduction wisely, improving fitness and diversity. Uh eugenics question mark? Like population yeah. control, possible genocide? Like there's Hitler could have written that one for all we know. Yeah, you
1: you can tell this guy is, is a was a major eugenicist. He was eugenicist globalist, major environmentalist, like a new age, just a new age kook, complete whack job, who managed to cough up over a hundred thousand nineteen eighty dollars to create this massive stone structure in Georgia. And uh, so that's basically what Candace Taylor and others have been uh, pointing out, that this is something, this thing needs to be demolished because it doesn't align with the values of Georgians. And, uh, you know, it just it's a symbolic victory. The fact, you know, accidents happen, you know, just you have (laughs) sometimes dynamite just happens to pop up underneath stones that shouldn't be there to begin with. And it goes boom. So (laughs) nobody's going to shed any tears over this. And uh, it's just it's it's a moral victory for sure.
0: I will say, yeah, it is kind of satisfying. Only given that, you know, of course, we disavow violence here on The Right Take normally. But given that they spent a year and a half, two years Tearing down historic, real historic monuments all over the country. Statues, of course, of the Confederacy, but also statues of the Founding Fathers. So many historic monuments and all memorials, all war memorials, graves, all kinds of things vandalized over these years. And now one globalist monument gets a little bit of a chip. Because, yeah, you mentioned the TNT only blew up like one of the stones. They went in and demolished the rest of it for safety reasons. You know, I'm, But, of course, now suddenly, oh, it's a big scandal. It's a big scandal. I just had to mention this, though, by the way. I was at work when I first heard like the breaking news that Georgia Geisel has been blown up because I remember that conversation we had. I immediately checked the Wikipedia page. you got to love Wikipedia sometimes. Whenever someone suddenly, the moment someone famous dies or something happens that changes an existing Wikipedia article, there's a flood of people going to edit it. It wants to be the first there. But every now and then, a little a gem slips in there. And I had this screenshot. I screenshot this as soon as I saw it. The moment I loaded up the Georgia Guidestones Wikipedia page, one of those troll edits was still there at the top. And it said, um, the original, in the intro in the screenshot said, quote, the Georgia Guidestones is a granite monument erected in 1980 in Elbert County, Georgia. Klaus Schwab and a few of his pals blew it up earlier today with some TNT. <laughs> and I immediately, I highlighted that and screenshotted it. it. was like, and of course I refreshed the page after that and it was, it was already gone, but I just saw that. And I'm like, uh, little moments where you love Wikipedia, just barely every now and then. Oh, uh, but you know, so long Georgia Guidestones. We hardly knew ye. Um, <laughs>
1: Speaking of speaking of white pills, we got uh, Brittany Griner. Did you hear about her? Uh, uh, she's the, guilty.
0: She's the uh, the basketball player who's stuck in Russia, right?
1: Yeah, she she was arrested a few days before Russia launched its so called special operation, and she's been in she's been sitting in the slammer ever since. And she uh, recently pleaded guilty to having uh, she had some marijuana in vape canisters that she was found with, and there's a, a mandatory minimum sentence of five years in prison for that in Russia. So. She's not going to be playing basketball for quite a while, and uh you know ordinarily for something that i'm not I, i'm kind of i believe in in marijuana legalization but um you know it's russia i don't it's right in russia that. I don't help make Russian laws if you're gonna to go to a country where it's illegal you better not bring it it's it's very simple like you don't <laughs> Well, it's like that one, Amer-
0: that. that one American student who went to North Korea and tried to steal, like, a painting or something out of his hotel room, and he got arrested for it. Now, obviously, what they did to him was disproportionate to what he did, but if you're going to go to a dangerous country like that, you've got to be on your toes and be like, yeah, this is not America. This is not arguably not even a first world country that in terms of how you know authoritarian they are you really got to walk on eggshells in a country like that and so to in this case this is much worse than you know what that student in North Korea did to bring yeah to bring drugs to bring illegal drugs to Russia like she's probably assumed because she's an athlete a semi professional athlete she thought she'd get away with it like she probably gets away with everything here in America uh-huh. yeah. um, I I also did want to mention this this was a article I saw in passing doing the news coverage I do uh, that, of course, Joe Biden has spoken out about this case because, of course, she is a black female basketball player, you know, quasi celebrity. And this, of course, has drawn the ire of other Americans who have relatives who are also in prison in Russia for a variety of reasons, including a former U.S. Marine named Paul Whelan, who apparently has been in prison in Russia for over three and a half years. This is a headline from The Hill, quote, Paul Whalen's sister crushed by Biden's call to Griner's wife. Oh yeah, by the way, she's Griner's a lesbian. By the way, just yeah,
1: little, oh, oh, by the way, she's also six foot nine, two hundred five pounds. Just, uh, just a just little extra tidbit there.
0: Ugh. Yeah. Quote: The sister of former U.S. Marine Paul Whelan, who was arrested in Russia while traveling as a tourist over three years ago, said she was crushed after Biden's call to jailed American basketball star Brittany Griner's wife on Wednesday. Quote: Tweeting a press release from the White House, Elizabeth Whelan urged the president to discuss ways to secure her brother's release. She said, "Quote." Still looking for that press release saying POTUS has spoken to anyone in our family about hashtag Paul Whelan wrongly detained in Russia for 3.5 years. Of course. Of course. But of course, of course, he's he's a Marine. He's a veteran. He's a white guy. He's not a celebrity. Why should Biden care about someone like that? Right. Of course, he's going to care more about this basketball player. You know, Black Lives Matter solidarity. than he's going to care about an actual American veteran, an American hero who it doesn't specify what he did that got him arrested. But he was just there as a tourist. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if maybe they pulled some, you know, fishier stuff there to arrest him than, you know, something like what Brittany Griner did. But and of course, that was three and a half years ago. That was way before. Before any of this Ukraine stuff happened, so this was back, you know, in relative peacetime. So now, of course, also with the Ukraine thing in the headlines, people are going to focus on this even more and going to say, "Oh, this is Russia retaliating for American support to Ukraine." Which, I mean, yeah, Russia is going to retaliate against a female basketball player. That's, that's their retaliation, really. No, I don't buy that.
1: The, the, the peak of arrogance, though, is the State Department and may reclassified her as being "quote unquote" wrongfully detained. So the, the narrative that the U.S. government is running with is they should have never detained her to begin with. She shouldn't have been in jail at all, even though she obviously broke their laws and she's recently pleaded guilty. Whereas the tactic that her, her Russian lawyer is taking is that you need to just admit that you were wrong, plead guilty, and ask for leniency. And that's really how the U.S. government should be handled. But of course not. We're basically treating her as if she's a political prisoner, that she's arrested because she's an American being wrongfully detained. It, it's just the the height of, the height of arrogance on our government's part, um, mm-hmm. and it's and again, like um, you know, it's the way it's the the double standard the way they're treating her because she's a WNBA player. There is no professional sports organization anywhere in the or league. There's no professional sports league anywhere in America that's been pro more pro BLM and more pro leftist than the WNBA. Of course, I remember at this time in 2020, I tuned into a WNBA game briefly. They go on for 20 minutes after the game was supposed to start over all of the BLM stuff, like all of the alleged unjustified killings they were going on. was the Who was the who was lady in uh, Kentucky, Louisville, Kentucky, who got blown away? Oh, Brianna Taylor? Brianna Taylor, because her boyfriend was a druggie, and you know, they were- And he fired at the cops first. The yeah. And, mm-hmm. Yeah, shot, actually shot a police officer, and the police returned fire and shot her because she was standing right behind him in the hallway. So they went on like a 10-minute- Ah, uh, basically a slam poetry rant oh, over God. over this woman, and all you know, and over all these other uh, Akmal Aubrey and all these others who were killed in 2020. And in recently, all the WNBA players came out, number 42, which is Brittany Griner's number. They're going to come out and show solidarity for their sister who's being wrongfully detained in uh, in Russia. And so it's no wonder that the White House is going to treat this in the way they're treating it. Is If she's wrongfully detained, they're going to treat her like a celebrity and ignore the Marine because the WNBA has just been their cheerleaders. Remember when uh, Kelly Loeffler, she owned, partially owned the WNBA team in Atlanta. That's right. And when, Yeah, and then in 2020, they kicked her out because of her being a Republican, you know, being not supporting BLM and not towing the Malice line with the WNBA star. So uh, nothing would make me happier just because, oh, and one more thing before we move on. Um, let's don't forget about Britney Griner's stance on the national anthem. This is from 2020 when all the WNBA stars were showing their solidarity behind BLM and giving their pledge of allegiance to uh, black nationalists. I would say, prediction, uh,
0: prediction. Her stance on the national anthem is the kneeling stance, right? No, not
1: even. <laughs> so, uh, Yahoo News, this is from Yahoo Sports. Britney Griner, national anthem has no place in WNBA. Britney Griner didn't take the floor for the national anthem during the Phoenix Mercury's debut in the WNBA bubble on Saturday. That's who she plays for. Don't expect her to do so moving forward. The Mercury Center and 2019 League MVP runner-up told reporters on a video call Monday that the WNBA should stop playing the anthem this season. She said, quote, I honestly feel we should not play the national anthem during our season. I think we should take that much of a stand. No players took the floor for the anthem prior to the Mercury season opening loss to the Los Angeles Sparks on Saturday. That protest arrived as the WNBA focused its opening weekend on calling for justice for Breonna Taylor, the 26-year-old black woman who was shot and killed by police in Louisville. Griner plans to extend her protest throughout the season. She said, quote, I'm going to protest regardless. I'm not going to be out there for the national anthem. If the league continues to want to play it, that's fine. It will all be all season long. I'll not be out there. I feel like more are going to probably do the same thing. I can only speak for myself. Griner, like so many players who have protested before, made clear their protest doesn't have anything to do with the military. She said she believes the anthem doesn't represent black Americans. She said, quote, I personally don't think it belongs in sports. Black people didn't have rights at that point. It's hard disrespecting a song that didn't even represent all Americans when it was first made. I think she misspoke. She meant to say it's hard respecting a song. She said disrespect. She probably doesn't know the difference between respect, respect and disrespect. So she said it's hard disrespecting a song that didn't even represent all Americans when it was first made. So her argument was because The Star Spangled Banner came out in 1813 when blacks weren't American citizens, then black people shouldn't respect the national anthem. But, I mean, Italians, people of Italian ancestry, they weren't – their ancestors were in Italy at the time too. And they still respect the national anthem because they're Americans today, and that is our national anthem today. So – but, yeah, that's her stance on on the national anthem. So, yeah, if she happens to get her the the max – she's supposed to go away for 10 years, and since she pleaded guilty, her lawyer is hoping she'll only get five. Hey, 10 years hard labor would, would be really, really cool. You know what I mean? Maybe she'll actually get to use, uh, use that six foot nine body to do something besides shoot basket and shoot balls in a hoop.
0: Well, I imagine when she gets out of this, when she inevitably gets out and comes back to America, she'll probably write a tell all memoir or something documenting the horrors of Russian prison and how she was a, you know, talking about how it was racist. Like, oh, Russia targeted her for being black, like all that stuff. Like, it's going to be a sad, woe is me memoir. And she's going to make millions off of that. Gonna go on the speaking circuit, probably land a nice gig at MSNBC or something. It's she. She will never need to play basketball again. Honestly, she'll probably she'll probably end up with like a media gig that'll be more profitable than you know bouncing a ball in a court. But Mm -hmm. that that is just the way it is of professional victimhood in the United States today. On that note, we do need to talk about some more uh, very sad bits of news, both from over across the oceans on both sides of us. Let's go across the Atlantic first. Uh, this this one came out of nowhere and really stunned me. Uh, Boris Johnson, the, the based national populist prime minister of the United Kingdom, who does not own a comb, apparently, does not <laughs> comb his hair. And we love him for it all the same. He has a glorious head of blonde hair, just like uh, President Trump did. He announced his resignation on July 7th. Um, and now, of course, there had been a few, like, controversies and scandals here and there. The First off, there was one called Partygate, which revealed that Boris Johnson and a lot of leadership of the Conservative Party were having parties at 10 Downing Street, which is basically their White House, their 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, in the midst of COVID lockdowns. So, big surprise, you know, kind of like uh, Gavin Newsom going to the French Laundry, et cetera, et cetera. And it was a bit of a scandal. There was a vote of no confidence in Parliament, which Johnson ultimately survived. But now we had a whole new scandal in the form of a fellow, a chappy, I guess, as you would say in British terms, by the name of Chris Pincher, who uh, Boris Johnson hired to be the deputy chief whip of the Conservative Party. And it eventually emerged that apparently Pincher had been accused of sexual misconduct and sexual assault. And Johnson apparently was aware of these claims when he made the hire, anyway. And so, when, you know, the. Time-old question. What did he know? When did he know it? Apparently, he knew it at the wrong time. He knew it after he made the hire. So that set off a whole new round of resignations. I think like over 50 members of his cabinet resign, members of parliament resign, and he ultimately announced his resignation in the face of another no-confidence vote that would probably kick him out. He is gone after less than three years. There will be a leadership election later this year to replace him. And I'm pretty upset about this. Now, I know a lot of people have, like, mixed feelings about Boris Johnson. That, like, Obviously, again, in the context of U.K. politics, their right wing is not nearly as right wing as, our, as the American right. Boris Johnson is not going to be as hardcore as someone like Trump or, you know, uh, maybe Ron DeSantis or what have you. But he still was very much a national populist right wing figure that was right for the time and certainly in the era of Brexit. Again, he supported Brexit from the very beginning. And he ultimately, as prime minister, he ran on one campaign promise, get Brexit done. And he got it done, despite all the efforts of the globalists, the EU, everything, you know, parties within the United Kingdom, the Labour Party, uh, Scotland, certainly, which overwhelmingly opposed the uh, post-Brexit. He ultimately powered on through and got it done. And it was a huge deal the uk left the european union and we have boris johnson to thank for that but once that was done you know what else did he have he had a few other kind of lofty ideas you know social spending reforms whatever then covid hit and he did get he did catch the coronavirus and apparently it it messed him up pretty badly he apparently almost died he managed to recover but he was a changed man after that you know shaken by this near death experience he went all in on lockdowns and like i said went all in on lockdowns for everybody else except for him so it's a, d- a disappointment at the end of the day he could have been really solid he could have very much been the Donald Trump of the UK but I guess it just was not meant to be he got brexit done and we will always thank you for that Boris or Bojo as people call you I guess go back writing history books you know he's a historian he can speak uh, ancient Greek he could recite entire passages in ancient Greek and Latin you know Godspeed to you Even sadder news, uh, this going across the Pacific, when I saw this immediately, when I saw the news that Shinzo Abe had been shot, the the former prime minister of Japan, when I read the initial reports, I just had that feeling he was not going to survive. And sure enough, he did not survive. The former prime minister, who longest-serving prime minister in Japanese history over eight years – he, of course, was prime minister during the entirety of President Trump's tenure – he resigned in 2020 amid health problems – Uh, But he still is very active in supporting his party. He, too, a right-wing Japanese nationalist and populist who, kind of like Narendra Modi in India, he's one of those world leaders that there's no timeline that exists where he does not get along with someone like Donald Trump. He and Trump were very, very close. He was one of the first world leaders to reach out to the Trump administration during the transition. He supported Trump at all the various meetings, the G7 and UN meetings. Uh, there was those those glorious memes that people shared at the time and then were resharing after news of his death uh, from when he and Trump were feeding the fish. Do you remember that, Jacob? And they had like a little yeah, box yeah. of food, uh, fish food and they just dumped it all out in the water. What an absolute mad lad. He was a great man. Uh, he was uh, campaigning for his party in some upcoming local elections on July 6th when he was shot from behind by a man wielding a homemade Firearm, Which, when you see the pictures of it, it looks like a sawed-off double barrel shotgun, but it was a homemade firearm. He built this thing entirely himself from scratch because Japan has some of the strictest anti-gun laws in the world. Gun controls is very, very heavy there, but he still managed to do this. The suspect was quickly arrested without resistance. His name is Tetsuya Yamagami. He is 41 years old. He apparently is a veteran. He served in the Japan Maritime Self-Defense Force for three years. Um, and then... Found employment as a forklift operator before quitting in May 2022, claiming that he was feeling unwell. Uh, reading from the Wikipedia page here, he has told investigators that his motive had been personal rather than political. His mother was a member of the Unification Church, which is a church that was founded in the 50s in South Korea, based around, of course, Korean unification and a few other things. His mother was a member of the church and declared bankruptcy in 2002 after making huge donations to the church. Uh, This ultimately led to him holding a grudge against the group, and upon researching the church's supposed connections to Abe, he ultimately came to believe that the former prime minister spread the church's influence in Japan. So that was his primary reason. He originally had plans to assassinate just one of the high-ranking officials of the church before deciding on Abe himself, Hmm. Uh, which really proves, uh, it's, it's true what's been said, I've heard people say, about assassins who go after famous people. They very rarely target... A single famous person like I want this particular celebrity dead. What they do is they're obviously usually crazy. This guy does sound like he was probably a bit crazy they just kind of float from one target to the next. Sometimes they want to get an actor, then they want a politician or a musician, and they just bounce from one target to the next before eventually they just strike because all they really want to do is just assassinate someone famous. John Hinckley Jr. is a prime example, of course. He was obsessed with the actress Jodie Foster and decided, well, the only way to uh, impress her, clearly, because she was in Taxi Driver with Robert De Niro, I've got to assassinate someone famous and then she'll notice me. So things like that. They don't really have the target in mind. They just want to kill somebody famous. And this guy is proof of that. And if you watch the video, this, the way this was set up too, you look at how this campaign rally was set up. A failure of security in every way possible. The stage was on like the sidewalk facing a plaza in front of a building and behind the stage was the street. Like usually most campaign stages, like any of, one of Trump's rallies, there's a wall behind the stage or maybe just like a, multiple rows of bleachers for people to stand on behind the political figure in question. There's something behind them as a relative barrier so that anything that could possibly come at them would be kind of from the front or their peripheral view on either side. You know, And, of course, protection, You know, security details are supposed to keep an eye out for this stuff. But it was very open. There was no wall behind him. There was the street behind him. Open plaza in front of him. Both He was exposed on both sides. It was a small stage. And in the video, you can see the guy, the assassin, Yamagami was standing behind him for several minutes. He didn't just run up and fire right away. He stood there and just watched, you know, like a a hunter, you know, assessing his prey for a few long minutes before he just whipped out this gun and fired several shots. And Abe, who was 67, uh, very quickly was uh, unresponsive by the time they brought him to the hospital, showing no vital signs, and ultimately was declared dead shortly after arriving at the hospital, so... A devastating tragedy. Again, he was the longest serving prime minister for a reason. He had a lot of accomplishments under his belt, namely that he focused on strengthening Japan's military and expanding Japan's role in international politics, especially with regards to standing up to China. And again, teamed up with President Trump, you know, the then new president of the United States, in forming a very strategic Pacific region alliance against China, because Japan certainly is one of those nations that has a lot of reason to be concerned with China being pretty much right next to them. And of course, a longstanding rivalry that those two nations have. So, rest in peace, former prime minister Shinzo Abe. We're going to miss you, man. You know, you get these really slow news weeks and then you have a week like this where it's just a ton of bad news. Following up, a few weeks ago we had a week of great news with, you know, the the Roe v. Wade overturning. So, it's 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 a roller coaster. Politics always is a roller coaster. You have your highs and you have your lows. Before we move on, we have to do, of course, another election recap for you guys here at The Right Take. We had a handful of competitive primaries two weeks ago, and this is going to be the last update for a little while because we have a bit of a dry spell over the next few weeks with not a lot of primaries between now and then. We will be coming back, of course, with more primaries on August 2nd, and I'll come to that in a bit. But we had to start off. We had New York. Uh, the biggest race there, the most important race at that time, is the primary for governor. New York is actually kind of weird first off, and apparently they have two different primary dates, one for like statewide offices and another for Congress. I don't understand. The the congressional primaries are in like mid or late August. I don't understand why they did that, but whatever, so we'll have to wait on the Jerry Nadler race for a little while. But in the GOP primary for governor to challenge Kathy Hochul, who took over for Andrew Cuomo, Congressman Lee Zeldin... Pretty solidly defeated Andrew Giuliani, the son of former New York City Mayor Rudy Giuliani, 44.1% to Giuliani's 229 Just a crushing victory for Zeldin. One thing I saw that was interesting: Zeldin dominated most of the counties throughout the state, but Giuliani won almost all the counties in New York City, which goes to show hmm, that that name is still very popular in the Big Apple. Gee, I wonder why. Uh, I guess if he had decided to run for mayor of New York last year, he probably would have easily won that Republican nomination. Uh, so sorry, you know, Mr. Giuliani. You know, uh, he, he's a younger guy. I'm sure he's definitely got uh, he's plenty of chances to run for something in his future. Again, it's all kind of a fool's errand because I don't think anyone is going to win. The, the, Zeldin's not going to win that election. I don't think it's it's New York. And this isn't... If he was running against Andrew Cuomo, maybe there'd be a chance, maybe. But Kathy Hochul, she does not have the baggage that Cuomo had. So the, just a moot point, but I thought I would cover that. Illinois, several interesting races. Uh, two different instances of incumbent-on-incumbent incumbent violence because Illinois lost a seat in the census. So they ended up pitting two incumbents together against each other in two different seats. District 6, this was great. Two Democrats, Sean Caston... Versus Marie Newman, Kasten destroyed Newman in a blowout, 67.8% to Newman's 29.1%. Now, why is this important? Newman is the one who primaried out Dan Lipinski from the 3rd District back in 2020, after she narrowly lost the primary to him in 2018. Uh, You may remember that name, Dan Lipinski, because he was one of the only very few pro-life Democrats in the House of Representatives, and unapologetically pro-life. Several years in a row, Lipinski personally attended the March for Life in Washington, D.C. He took the stage, and he was there when President Trump addressed the March for Life in a rare show of bipartisanship. He was a member of the Blue Dog Coalition. He voted against Obamacare and a few other things. He was a solid conservative Democrat, basically almost like a Joe Manchin in the House of Representatives. And she primaried him out because, oh, he's too conservative. You know, He doesn't belong here anymore. You know, There's no room for moderates in this party anymore, so— he was out and she ended up winning as a hardcore progressive. So seeing her lose this primary by such a landslide was very satisfying. Something worth noting. I talked about this with a friend of mine who lives in Illinois. Caston had recently made headlines when his 17-year-old daughter died suddenly in her sleep a couple weeks before the primary. So a friend of mine opined that uh, he would probably win a lot of sympathy votes just based on that alone. So I don't know if that's the reason here or not or if maybe he was just slightly you know, not as crazy progressive as she was. But either way. He destroyed her, and now Newman has faced the same fate that Lipinski faced. And I love that, you know, at the end of the day, Lipinski will be remembered as someone who was able to display that bipartisanship on the issue of abortion. And as the left loves to say, there that phrase, Lipinski was on the right side of history on abortion. Marie Newman, he's going to be remembered. He will be remembered for that alone. Marie Newman, you will be forgotten very quickly for serving only one term. District 15, two more incumbents, Republicans, faced off against each other. Congresswoman Mary Miller versus Congressman Rodney Davis. Miller ended up ultimately winning with 57.6% to Davis's 42.4%. This was another huge test of Trump's endorsement power, kind of like the West Virginia race. Miller, of course, was endorsed by Trump, while Davis was endorsed by, among others, the Illinois AFL-CIO, the Illinois Farm Bureau, the Illinois Fraternal Order of Police State Lodge. The Illinois Chamber of Commerce and the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, as well as over a dozen state legislators, three other congressmen in the state of Illinois, and House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy. Interesting.
1: (laughs) I just just want to mention that it's it's absolute – it shows the state of our politics and how you've got a uniparty when Mm -hmm. the AFL-CIO and the U.S. Chamber of Commerce are endorsing the same exact candidate.
0: Exactly. And that candidate still lost in a landslide because of one man's endorsement. That is so glorious. And it needed to happen. It's not just, you know, like, you know, Trump picked you know his favorite of the two. Davis was a bad egg. He was one of the thirty five Republicans who voted in favor of creating the January 6th commission. And Miller, of course, very much touted that in her attack ads against him. And interestingly enough, though, Davis was also one of the original Republican picks by Kevin McCarthy to serve on the January 6th committee that Pelosi created before she, of course, kicked off uh, Jim Banks and Jim Jordan, at which point McCarthy, rightfully so correctly, pulled all those Republicans and said, OK, fine, if you're not going to let any of my people on, I'm not playing this game with you. So Davis is gone. He will serve out this term and then he'll be out of Congress and Miller will continue serving that district. Uh, also, Trump's endorsement power. In the race for governor, the primary there, State Senator Darren Bailey crushed his competition with 57.66% of the vote. He will go on to face the billionaire with a waistline as large as his bank account, J.B. Pritzker, the incumbent governor there. Again, like New York, probably a fool's errand, although, of course, Illinois did elect a Republican governor as recently as 2014. So let's keep an eye on that one, see how that goes. Uh, rounding out the list here, Colorado. This was a crucial one. District 3, Lauren Boeber. Her words pack as much of a punch as the gun that she always carries on her. She was challenged by a moderate Republican state senator named Don Corum. And leading up to the primary, she was the target of numerous left-wing smears by the same group that claimed to be responsible for taking down Madison Cawthorn, allegedly by leaking that lewd video of him. Uh, And these smears were ridiculous. They openly claimed that she used to be a prostitute— Among other things that she had a sugar daddy, that she was a escort, I guess is the word they use, quote unquote. And of course, she denied these outright and has threatened legal action. And even CNN admitted that these claims are false, that there was just no evidence to support these claims. There was one picture they were circulating of, of, you know, scandally dressed escorts sitting on a bed that they claimed. This is Lauren Boebert. If you look at the picture, she looks nothing like Lauren Boebert. She's blonde, for one, and her face does not look the same at all. She doesn't have the same facial structure, facial features, like nothing. It looks nothing like Lauren Boebert, but they unironically shared this thing. And Boebert easily won 65.8% to quorums, 34.2%. Lastly, in the race for U.S. Senate against uh, Democratic Senator Michael Bennett, uh, it was businessman Joe O'Dea versus State Representative Ron Hanks. This was one result that I did not like. Because uh, Ron Hanks was my personal pick, primarily because he was in attendance at the U.S. Capitol on January 6th. Based? Let's go. Um, But unfortunately, Joe Odia won by a nine-point margin, 54.5 to Hanks' 45.5. And of course, Democrats were talking about, like, allegedly, they wanted Hanks to be the nominee. Because he'd be easier to beat because, oh, crazy January 6th insurrectionist, blah, 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 blah. But, of course, they're going to do that with any Republican at this point. Let's be honest. They did that. They tried to do that with Glenn Youngkin when he ran. So I wish they would have just gone all in and voted for Ron Hanks. But apparently it was not enough. He lost by a single-digit margin, which is noteworthy. But ultimately, again, I think that also is a race I'm not going to hold my breath for. Colorado also went red as recently as 2014 with Cory Gardner. But I wouldn't focus on that mostly because we don't need Colorado to take back the Senate. So, this ultimately puts Trump with those endorsements, which he, by the way, on that primary day, he went 12 and 0, nicely done. And his endorsement record for 2022 now stands at 144 victories to nine losses, which is still far better, certainly, than the record of uh, Joe Biden, who I believe is 1 and 1, and Bernie Sanders, who I think is uh, 0 and 1. Like I said, not a lot of interesting primaries coming up for a while. August second is going to be a big one, though, folks, and we're going to cover that for you. You have Arizona, Kansas, Michigan, Missouri, and Washington State. You have a crucial Senate race in Arizona. You have two pro impeachment Republicans being challenged in Washington State. You have uh, Eric Greitens running for the Senate in Missouri. You've got Chris Kobach running for Attorney General. In Kansas, that's huge. You've got the absolutely dystopian state of the Michigan governor's race where Gretchen Hitler herself is just either kicking all her opponents off the ballot or arresting her opponents. It's insane. We are going to be covering that when it happens, because that is going to be uh, arguably, I think, pretty much the last really exciting batch of multiple primaries in one day after that of course following that you will eventually have florida you'll have wyoming with liz cheney you'll have a few others uh primary season is winding down here folks as we get closer to the meat of the matter which is the general election
1: So one of the things I didn't want to cover this episode was the Elvis movie. I saw the trailer in a theater about a month and a half ago. And this is one thing that I've been looking forward to someone making for years because they did make, I don't remember who made it, but there's the Walk the Line movie about Johnny Cash. It came out, I believe, in 2003, shortly before Cash passed away. That was phenomenal. It was a fantastic movie. It uh, represented his life great. Um, The acting was uh, – I can't believe it escapes my mind. Who played Uh, him? uh, Joaquin
0: Joaquin Phoenix. What
1: a madman. Joaquin Phoenix. Okay. Yeah, I saw it. Actually, I saw it shortly after it came out. This was like 2005. I need to go back and watch it again, but I just remember it being a phenomenal movie. My parents, who are huge Johnny Cash fans, they loved it. They felt that it represented his life fairly and correctly. So I was looking forward to the Elvis movie because I was like, you know, Elvis is the most powerful singer that ever existed in yep. the world. Why has Why hasn't someone made a definitive work on his life? There have been movies made about Elvis, but they There's were few- pretty much relegated to obscurity.
0: Yeah, there was like a made-for-TV movie starring Kurt Russell, who has a long and storied career associated with Elvis. You know, but here and there, yeah, a few things, but not the grand like ultimate biopic that we've all been hoping for that you would think the best-selling solo artist in the history of recorded music would eventually be deserving of
1: right right i'm glad that you saw it as well so we can actually both give experienced reviews of this thing so i'll actually i'll let you give your thoughts on it and then i'll say what i thought about it sure
0: well again for added context i've been a huge fan of elvis ever since i was a teenager listening on sirius xm elvis radio they have a whole station dedicated to just Elvis and it's fantastic not just the songs he recorded but also live performances never before heard uh takes from the vault and I remember for my 16th birthday I did a sort of Elvis pilgrimage Uh, my parents and I we went to Graceland in Memphis Tennessee we stayed at the Harpig Hotel and we also got to see his birthplace the original house where he was born and raised in Tupelo Mississippi really an inspiring life story he truly was an American icon in every sense of the word an all-American hero one of the greatest Americans and one of the greatest people who's ever lived I think And with that in mind, of course, when I first saw a picture of the guy who plays him in the movie, uh, his name is uh, Austin Butler, he does a fantastic job looking just like him. He looks just like him, and he sounds just like him. You know, the voice and everything. And, and of course, you can tell in plenty of the musical scenes, they're just using the original Elvis audio, and he's lip-syncing it, because, of course, you're going to do that. But with that said, at the end of the day, that's the core of the movie. It is an Elvis jukebox movie there every other scene is a musical scene whether it's a montage of him playing all his best hits from the 50s whether it's him doing the 68 comeback special his shows at the international in las vegas it's music 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 with the flashiest visuals you really feel like this is the ultimate musical elvis experience and i loved it from start to finish it was a little long it's two hours and 40 minutes long about um but with that said i thought i thought it was good um again, Austin Butler's performance was great. And of course, the one other thing worth talking about in the movie is the the villain, quote unquote, who is Tom Hanks, who plays his manager, Colonel Tom Parker, who's very much depicted as this, you know, just greedy businessman who sees opportunistic man who sees this potential for Elvis to be the biggest star in the world. You know, he sees himself as a showman and he sees Elvis as, you know, his almost like freak show attraction. So he turns him into a commodity, he turns him into a, a label, a brand, you know, even over the objections of Elvis's mother. And he, in some ways, kind of screws Elvis out of certain opportunities. Like, Elvis wanted to do a world tour, but Parker wanted to keep him in Las Vegas because this hotel agreed to pay off his gambling debts, among other things. There's a scene depicting a huge blow-up between the two of them, which definitely did not happen. It shows Elvis, like... Heavily drunk and on drugs, just having an outburst of vulgarity on stage against Parker that that did not happen in real life, of course. But I, I thought on the whole it was good. It did right by Elvis the man himself. It would have been so easy. This is what I feared, and I think you'll probably will touch. This is the angle we're going to get up get into here. It would have been so easy for them to do another deconstruction narrative, like "Oh, you thought you knew who Elvis was? Well, here's the real man." Depict him as a horrible man, as a womanizer, as you know, oh. Old, Not just derivative, but like a rip off artist he just he was really inspired by this person, you know the whole Thomas Edison didn't invent the light bulb, a black person did that kind of thing with Elvis but no, it was respectful of him, it showed him as he was devoted to his family he, he loved his parents and he was very caring of his wife uh, Priscilla and his daughter Lisa Marie. It makes no secret if you're a real Elvis fan. It's no secret that he was inspired by black music. He very much took the best of black music, which was rhythm and blues and soul, and combined it with the best of white music, which was country and gospel, and combined it into this fantastic phenomenon that is Elvis's brand of rock and roll. So especially in an era, in the 50s and 60s, the era of race relations, it's not preachy. It's it's true. If you know who Elvis is, then that was the man. That was his style. He His music very much did arguably just as much for race relations as anything in the Civil Rights movement, you know, the Civil Rights Act or MLK or what have you. So in that sense too, he was an admirable man. What f- few things could better unite people than good music, right? Universally, we love the sound of beautiful music, whether it's classical music or whether it's good old rock and roll. I thought it was a great movie that by the end of it, they show like, you know, Elvis was still a good, decent man and a phenomenon, a global phenomenon who will be loved forever. You know, it notes that all these years after his death, he still is the best-selling solo artist in the history of recorded music, whereas Parker, again, the movie's villain, died alone and ultimately forgotten. So I think it was a great movie. Is it the best movie I've seen this year? No, that would still be Top Gun, but I definitely enjoyed this movie. I'm glad I saw it, and I'm especially glad I saw it in theaters to be able to experience that's the sound of the music all around me. Uh, Jacob, what's your take?
1: So the fact that it wasn't able to top Top Gun shows that it was not a great Elvis movie.
0: Interesting. There, there's
1: absolutely no reason why Buzz Lerman could not have made this into the best movie of 2022. Now, to be fair, Austin Butler gave an Oscar-worthy performance. Like, that was one of the best performances I've ever seen so I think he definitely did a better job than Tom Cruise did in Top Gun, so I think he does, definitely deserves best actor. But beyond that, the the screenwriting itself, the way that the movie plays out, I'm not a fan of the way that they use Tom Parker as the, the main character in the film. They use yeah. him narrating the story. He's That's- the
0: narrator, yeah.
1: Yeah, so that's that I do believe that's Lerman's way of trying to put a new twist okay. on the story of Elvis because this is the difficulty whenever you're making a movie about a person that everyone knows. Like everyone knows the story of Elvis. Mm-hmm. You can look up Wikipedia and you know in 5 minutes know everything there's to know about Elvis that was important. So I understand from the artistic standpoint you're wanting to put a new spin on it, you know, like this is a side of Elvis you didn't know about, you've never seen. Most people never heard of Tom Parker. So yeah, I get that, but it's still, to me, it took away from the story of Elvis because Tom Parker really is the main character in this story. Another aspect of it that's not great, what's well, actually terrible, is the way that Elvis's, um relationship with Christianity and black Christian music is showed in the film. If you remember the scene wherever, and of course, this isn't a spoiler because this scene is actually in the trailer. You can look at the trailer. I knew mm-hmm. this was going to be as bad as it was because it, it's horrible in the trailer, but it shows a young Elvis He's peering, through, um, he's, he's peering through a shed window where there's a black secular musician who's playing to a very scantily clad black female dancer. And then he and his black friends hear a revival meeting going on in a tent, like a tent meeting, mm-hmm. and they go run across the field to the tent. And then inside there's blacks who are having spiritual music. They're singing spiritual music. It's trying to show the, the contrast between how Elvis was inspired by secular black music and also inspired by Christian black music. And then he goes into this tent and he starts shaking everything. He starts twitching as if he's under some kind of spell. And the the black Christians, they bring him into the middle and he's all shaking like he's under a trance. And they put him up on their shoulders and they're carrying him around and stuff like this. Buzz Lerman's an Australian. So that's the problem right there. When you're bringing in a foreign director to direct a movie about an American musician, the only thing he really knows about American Christianity is what he's seen in Hollywood. Of course, Hollywood movies – have always been opposed, going back to the 60s, have been very much opposed to American Christianity, and they're going to pre- uh, present it in the worst possible light. So in his mind, he's thinking, okay, black Christians in America in the 1950s, he's thinking, okay, I'm going to try to put in some Afro beats to make this seem like it's an offshoot of African
0: music. That's a it good point, yeah.
1: It doesn't represent, like, it's not the, the like the rhythm and soul that was that is black gospel music. It, it doesn't sound anything like it. And, I mean, anyone who grew up in America can look at this and it's like, well, this is obviously a bunch of people who don't understand American Christianity just trying to – like they're not purposely trying to make fun of it, but they don't understand it, and they're showing a vision of it that was presented by people who actually hate it. Another aspect of this is as the movie progresses, Elvis repeatedly makes the argument that his music is based off of rhythm and blues and soul and all this stuff. Which it was, it's true, but we don't hear Elvis, the real Elvis in recordings actually giving credit to this. And over and over again, it's trying to, like, there's one point they say, Elvis is the king of rock and roll. He says, oh, no, no, I'm not the king of rock and roll. Um, Fat Domino, he's the king of rock and, yeah, rock and that, roll. Yeah, right?
0: I had a problem with that scene because there was a... I think that's kind of a twist on a quote Elvis actually did say, which is when, of course, he was referred to as the king of rock and roll. But someone asked him, like, oh, you know, what do you say to people calling you the king? You know, just the king. And he said, oh, I'm not the king. Jesus is the king. You know, like so he corrected him on that. But so that was the real thing Elvis said. But yeah, there was never a time when Elvis said, oh, I'm not the king of rock and roll. He He always very much accepted that title, I think.
1: And then later in the film, as he's talking about how he needs to, you know, he's at the he, he asked these these producers, okay, where am I in my career? They say, you're in the toilet. You're in the absolute toilet. And he's trying to figure out how to revamp his career and get back to his roots. Mm-hmm. And his wife asked him, okay, so what what do you need to do to get back to the music you love? Like, what do you need to do? And he uh, he remembers back when he was a kid listening to black spirituals and always like, well, I need to get back to that music. That's the music. That's my music that I love. And what the real Elvis at this point in his life, he started releasing Christian. He released a Christian album. That's right. He started playing, you know, gospel hymns and Christian music. That era of his life is completely erased from the story. At no point do they even hint that he produced Christian music. And instead, what they make it out to be is Elvis is a guy who was inspired by a bunch of spiritual blacks who used their rhythm. To produce secular music, and what he meant by "he's got to get back to the music that he loved," that you know, the the spiritual music It's just the cultural aspect, and this goes back to secularists and uh, you know our elites' view of religion in general. They view all religion as simply an aspect of culture. They don't view it as a genuine belief, like a, like a belief in the supernatural or the spiritual. It's all simply an aspect of culture. And I remember I went to this was Easter service twenty eighteen in Washington D.C. Went to a, wanted, I just wanted to you know, go to a church right in the middle of downtown. I figured, what kind of Easter service are they going to have in Sin City, America? Like, D.C., <laughs> for those who don't know, is the real Sin City. Like, it doesn't. Las Vegas can't hold a candle to Washington, D.C. So, so I figured, you know, I'm, I'm just going to see if they actually have a real Christian service at one of these churches. And it, it was a normal service, like a typical Easter service, but you had a bunch of non-Christian tourists there. And a bunch of D.C. locals who were obviously, you know, atheist, academics, you know, had 15 masters or whatever, they'd come to work in the swamp. And I remember walking out, this guy told his mom, he said you know, I thought it was really, really rude how the minister said that Jesus is the only way to heaven. That's just so rude. Like, why would you say that? It's like, you know, this, that's not the Easter service that I expected. I mean, normally when Christians have Easter, it's a lot of dancing. Actually, that doesn't exist in any church anywhere in history. Like you got that from uh, basically a compilation of Hollywood movies to try to present Christianity. So this is the problem in the modern era when you try to present a historical movie with modern actors, modern screenwriters. And a modern director who doesn't really, especially if he's not rooted in the culture. And just lastly, uh, and I know I'm, I'm kind of crapping all over this movie. I thought the movie was good. It wasn't great. I thought it was a good movie. I thought Austin Butler did a fantastic performance. There were some great, especially at the end of his life, I, th- I think that Lorman yeah. really, he, the beginning was kind of rocky. But I thought the last, the second half of the movie was was fantastic, the way it showed him later in life. A great tribute to, to Elvis. But uh, one, one last aspect is the, the he spends so much time focused on the gyrations that Elvis did when he was a young man yes. and that created a lot of controversy. And the scene in which he first comes out on stage and he's moving his hips and the women just go crazy and they start screaming and almost going into orgasmic glee, <laughs> the sexualization of that scene is not only realis- unrealistic, it's simply historically inaccurate. Uh, like you should, they zoom in on one woman and they say that, and the, Tom Parker is narrating, he's saying this girl was experiencing feelings that she didn't feel that she was allowed to have. Yeah. The, what, the, the basic overarching narrative is that America in the 1950s was an oppressive, religiously bigoted country. And Elvis came along and helped change that by liberating women, teenage girls and women sexually, and making it feel that it was okay to orgasm to men that they were not married to or they were not related to. So all these women are leaving their boyfriends and their husbands behind. They're going and running up toward trying to touch Elvis and everything. The problem with that narrative is, yes, obviously, like even my grandparents, they hated Elvis. They called him Elvis the pelvis. Th-
0: that, that was and the real it, thing, it, yeah.
1: It, did, it was a real thing. It did create controversy at the time among a lot of more prudish Americans. But the idea that all these women were screaming and yelling and trying to touch Elvis out of purely sexual desire is simply not true and it wasn't just elvis if you go back and you watch hank williams concerts in the 40s it was the same reaction if you go back and watch like a like a youtube recording of hank williams in, you know in nashville or whatever like the, at the grand Ole opry women and girls they were screaming at the top of their lungs whenever he came out on stage it's just like when people do that with morgan wallen today like it's the same it's just the way that women do that's just what they do when there's a there's a young male star that comes out on scene like it wasn't just his hip gyrations that produced that but yeah that that just they blew that out of proportion um to me this movie could have been so much better um they they really dragged it out they could have you know they could have really focused on one aspect of his life and really developed that i thought they were going to do that at the beginning of his life and then just kind of rushed to the last but um you know it it You know, it's it is what it is. It's kind of the best you can probably hope for in 2022. Yeah, it's not it's not anywhere as good as Walk the Line was, but unfortunately, but it's you know different times. Um, If they had made an Elvis movie in 2003, I feel that it would have been the the biopic that Elvis deserved.
0: Yeah, like I said, I do. There's this. This desire, I guess, among modern, you know, biopic directors that, oh, the movie has to be three hours long. It has to be really long. So, yeah, they stretch it out when it didn't need to be that long. And, of course, yeah, there are, like I said, there are creative liberties that they take with some things. Again, the drunken outburst from Elvis that never happens. Also, the historical inaccuracies. I definitely did a double take when they depicted he's doing his 68 comeback special. You know, the famous he's on the square stage surrounded on all sides by the audience. He's wearing the famous black leather suit. And the whole idea is, that oh, it's supposed to be a Christmas special. But Elvis just said, screw that. I'm just going to play all my hits from the 50s. And then they depict at some point during the performance, like uh, during the breaks in between the performance, th- suddenly the assassination of Bobby Kennedy happens. I'm like, uh, wait a minute. You literally just said earlier in the movie this is supposed to be a Christmas special. Bobby Kennedy was shot in June of 1968. And this takes place in yeah. December. So little things like that where it's like, yeah, you could have done a better job with that or maybe just not even included that because that wasn't really necessary. But either way. Yeah, it's – it's. I don't like saying that the standard now for movies is that it just doesn't have to be absolute garbage, but that is kind of the standard right now. Is this movie – like you said, is this movie garbage? No, it's not garbage. It's good. I would give it probably like a, an 8 out of 10, maybe an 8.5. I th- Again, it's not as good as Top Gun.
1: And I mean – I- Austin Butler dragged it kicking and screaming to that rating. It would have been a lot worse if they had gotten a worse actor to play Elvis.
0: And like you said, I think, yeah, Tom Hanks definitely. And a a lot of critics have agreed with us that Tom Hanks did a lot to drag it in the opposite direction to drag it further down because, Oh, like I guess the mentality, Oh, we have to have one famous person in the movie or else no one will see it. So yeah, they cast Tom Hanks and wearing a fat suit, obviously putting on this really thick accent to be Colonel Tom Parker. Um,
1: Well, that's another thing you don't like at the very end, you find out that he was originally from Holland, mm -hmm. but at the beginning he claims to be from West Virginia. And it's like, nobody ever questions okay why are you from west virginia and you sound like a foreigner like that's yes. never like it just doesn't make any sense and your last name is parker like something doesn't
0: add up here well, and apparently that was never his real name you know he never yeah. no one really knows what his real name was or something like that so yeah i don't know I, I liked it um and i actually will disagree a little bit with your assertion that it could have beaten top gun i would attribute that mainly to the fact that of course who is this movie really who is the target audience of this movie going to be is it going to be a new generation of young college women who in the 50s would have gone crazy over Elvis, who will now rediscover how great Elvis was? Or is this going to appeal more to like baby boomers or people who grew up with Elvis and liked him when he was alive? Or, you know, the rare oddity of someone like me who is as a young man who today, who obviously was not around when Elvis was alive, but I still like Elvis's music. So versus something like Top Gun, which I mean, yeah, Top Gun isn't too far removed from Elvis. You know, it came out in 86 and Elvis died in 77. But I think a movie like Top Gun done right done as well as it was and that is a top tier movie like that's a 10 out of 10 but a movie like that is going to have a broader appeal today than a movie about elvis i think and i guess maybe that just goes for biopics in general because of course you know a few years ago we had the um the queen biopic the freddie mercury one bohemian rhapsody and that one was really good but that was also kind of a limited audience because of course people like queen's music but what else are you going to get out of it, other than oh, like here's another story about you know everyone's favorite you know Bohemian Rhapsody well, band?
1: Well, when you make a biopic like that, that your core targeted audience should be the people who already like the the, the stars of the movie mm-hmm. and the music, and then you should build out from there rather than trying to start out with appealing to a new audience. And then also throw a bone to your core audience, and that's that's kind of what the uh, uh, the Bohemian Rhapsody movie. Uh, what was the name of the of uh, that movie? The
0: movie was called Bohemian Rhapsody. Okay,
1: yeah, yeah, I saw that. I actually saw that on an airplane once. It was fantastic. I thought it was very it was well go- done. I'm oh, not sorry. even a Queen fan. Uh, same with Walk the Line. I feel like that they started with their core audience, which is going to be older people who were young when this music came out, and they expanded it from there. It's not going to be like it doesn't have to gross more than Top Gun or some of these other movies. Obviously, it's not going to do that, but you should create it in such a way to where people who were vaguely familiar with Elvis walk away wanting to go look up Elvis uh, music and become an Elvis fan. And I feel like that's what Walk the Line did for Johnny Cash. Yeah. I feel like this movie just doesn't get there for Elvis, it doesn't make a person walk out of the theater. And want to go become an Elvis fan, even if they were just vaguely familiar with his music. That's a very good point.
0: And and that ties to the audience I saw it with. Seated on all sides of me were other, like, younger people, like young adults, college age people, you know, guys, girls. And I noticed they all seemed kind of like they stayed for the whole movie, but they seemed kind of not into it. They had their heads in their hands. They're just kind of staring at the screen. And I got the sense that they were together in a group, you know, two groups on each side of me. I got the sense maybe they went to go see it more as a group of friends thing rather than see the movie itself. Because I'm sitting there, like, smiling, bobbing to the music, you know, mouthing the lyrics, you know, like, all that stuff. Like I'm clearly enjoying it. I'm clearly a fan of the music, but they're just kind of sitting there. It it was different even from the audiences I saw Top Gun with. I saw Top Gun twice. You know, that's the first time in a long time I've seen a movie multiple times in theaters. And the audiences love Top Gun. There was laughter. There was moments where you could feel the whole audience was intense during the action scenes. And that really is... I wrote an article, a, a review of Top Gun for American Greatness, and Even then, I feel like I don't fully understand, or at least I can't put into words, how a movie like Top Gun works so well. That You have this sequel 36 years after the original to a movie that, you know, quintessential 80s movie, but it wasn't exactly a smash hit, like, you know... One of the most iconic movies ever made, but thirty six years later, you have the sequel. You have Tom Cruise. You have a handful of other younger, up and coming actors, and it's this massive phenomenon that surpasses the original in every way. And there still is kind of this, you know, secret sauce, secret ingredient somewhere in that movie that we can't quite figure out yet why it was such a big hit. But well,
1: I think the secret sauce is that it appeals to every person's gut nationalism Mm. that they they can't really explain why they're drawn to a movie like top gun but it's just like like the macho american nationalistic it's something that they're allowed to go to and they're allowed to feel patriotic about because pretty much everything out there on the market that has been marketed to american patriots has been deemed racist has been deemed verboten and this is something that everyone, Americans, could go to and feel proud and who in who they are as Americans. That this was kind of what if Elvis was going to be. I haven't looked up the numbers like the what the box office numbers are on are with Elvis, um, but I feel like if this thing really wanted to be that iconic Elvis movie, it had to appeal to nationalism. It had to present Elvis as an American patriot. Yes, he to love God, family, and country. And it, instead, it, it seems like it's mostly focused, it's more concerned about the root, not writing bad articles about it for being racist. Because this, right. this is one of the reasons why a lot of black people don't like Elvis. It's a lot, a lot of it is jealousy. I worked with a black guy when I was, uh, this was like 12 years ago, and I mentioned Elvis came up in conversation and said, right. oh, I hate, Elvis. I hate Elvis. I said, why do you hate Elvis? He said, well, my mom told me that Elvis said that the only thing a black man is good for is to shine my stinky shoes and i just laughed like
0: i busted out laughing It's the said, way what? elvis said that
1: he said he said that's not funny i said elvis never said anything like that i was like come like come on elvis grew up in mississippi and memphis like he was surrounded by black people like even if he didn't like black people he's not going to say something that rude mm-hmm. but this is but a lot of black people they've created this narrative about him that he was racist because he did take their music and popularize it, and they feel jealousy about that and I feel like the movie focuses so much attention on that aspect that it's got to show him giving credit where credit is due, that it just loses the, it loses the story. And I feel like if they were going to show him, if they really want to be a smashing su- success, they should have made him out. To be a hard because Elvis was right wing. Like, let's be honest, yes. he was a huge Nixon fan. He was a Republican.
0: Mm-hmm. Yep, he met Nixon. I'm surprised they didn't include that scene in the movie where he meets Nixon. I of course, don't, they're I not going to sure.
1: include that scene. They're not going to include that because they're trying to make him, they're trying to appeal to a woke, politically correct audience. And you just can't do that with historic movies. American history isn't woke, American historical figures were not politically correct.
0: American history is not woke; it's based. Everyone knows that. Yeah, yes, no, th- yeah. So, so if you're
1: true. gonna if you, and like top, that's Top Gun was successful because it's based. That's that. why it was
0: successful. That's right. If they that. wanted
1: to make a successful Elvis movie. They should have made Elvis based.
0: That is a good point. And on that note, that final note, like you said, um with the patriotism, that's that's one other problem I did have with the movie when they depict when he goes to join the army. You know, like this moment where um that they, they portray it more as oh he chooses to join the army to escape possible indecency charges for his you know pelvic movements or whatever on stage which is not that's not at all how it happened he was drafted Yeah, yeah, yeah
1: that never happened like yeah. he claims they're trying to put him in jail like he calls no, a riot never. again it's kind of they're kind of uh it, again it kind of goes back to the leftist pro-riot stance yeah that if you're challenging the powers that be you're challenging the patriarchy and the racist hierarchy it's okay to start a riot and attack police and everything and they're trying to make elvis out to somebody who was like starting riots and stuff
0: yeah, and he was not like happen. that. And he, he no, he never treated his service in the Army as a get-out-of-jail-free card. He was drafted, and there was a big hubbub, like, oh, Elvis is drafted. What's he going to do? Like, you know, he, he could have easily weaseled his way out of it because, oh, I'm, I'm Elvis Presley. But no, he was patriotic and said, my country has called me to serve. I will go serve. And he did. And he served honorably. And he was honorably discharged. So, I mean, that that was what – you're right. That's one of the problems I had. And you contrast that with Top Gun, which I, – I forget who wrote this, but someone said – Top Gun plays out, Top Gun Maverick, that is, it plays out almost like an America in an alternate timeline where none of this woke identity politics crap happened and everyone, people multiple races. If there's a there's a black recruit, there's Hispanic recruits, there's a woman, and they all get along fine. There's no identity politics, there's none of that crap. And on that final note, as you you mentioned, uh, the box office totals, currently Elvis is at a cool one hundred and fifty five point five million Top Gun. 1.2 billion dollars. It is the highest grossing movie of 2022 and it's one of the highest grossing movies of all time. So, yeah, it what speaks is the for itself. The, um, pro-
1: the production cost of Elvis,
0: the uh, production cost of Elvis, yeah, the budget 85 million dollars versus Top Gun's 170 million. Hmm.
1: Yeah, so I, I feel like like eighty million versus one fifty five. It's going to get a little. It might top two hundred million, but I just I feel like a yeah. movie like Elvis, we could have easily cleared three hundred million. On it. But yeah. uh, one my, one last uh, final thing on uh, from my point of view is Richard Roxburgh, who played as Vernon. As Elvis' dad, yes. Yes. he gave – I thought he gave a fantastic supporting performance, and he should definitely true. get a nomination for an Oscar <laughs> as a supporting actor. I that- thought he did a fantastic job portraying someone who would have been born like 1900 or so or late 1800s in Mississippi.
0: Yeah, that is true, and again, purely from a filmmaking standpoint, I will add on that note, they, of course, they depict the scene, they depict uh, when Elvis's mother dies, you know, an earlier death due to alcoholism, and Elvis is just crushed, and his father's crushed, and that was powerful, and then, for a while after that, his father, who is, uh, who plays a business managing role in his company, his father just disappears from the movie, like, Vernon's nowhere to be seen for quite a while, then he comes back in the climax when Elvis tries to fire Colonel Parker, and he comes, his father suddenly comes back in the scene, I'm like, oh, hey, Vernon, where have you been all this time, man? Like, he's kind of <laughs> out of nowhere, like, yeah, and you're right they did dirty by that actor who i think did a fantastic job the times he was on screen so we'll keep an eye on the oscar nominations next year because again there's quite a few good movies up this year between top gun and elvis we'll see how they do if they do well that is um but yeah that that is your movie review for you guys here at the right take that i think that's the first time we've ever done anything along the lines of a movie review and i think we could definitely do some more pop culture themed segments like that in the future And that is all the time we have left for you guys here on this episode of The Right Take. Thank you all so much for tuning in. As always, be sure to follow us for all of our latest content at our website, righttakepodcast.com. The full list of podcast platforms and social media websites where we are available, righttakepodcast.com slash subscribe. And as always, if ever you guys are feeling oh so generous, righttakepodcast.com slash support. We'll talk to you next week, guys.